Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Uh, I'm really excited about this episode. I'm going to introduce you to an author who I'm very familiar with, but it was my first time reading one of his works. And I want to introduce you to JP, who is, uh, has I have inter- interviewed before or been online with before. So I highly recommend that you check out JP's appearance on the Dickheads podcast with Counterclock World, which is one of PKD's most bonkers books. So you can get a lot of PKD nerding out uh, there. But uh, JP, welcome to uh, Postcards from a Dying World. Uh, tell the folks for, that are not as challenged at pronouncing names your full name and uh, where you're from. <laughs> sure. Hi, David. I'm Jeprakash Satyamurti. Uh, Jeprakash Satyamurti. And uh, everyone in my family calls me JP. So, you know, that's absolutely fine. Uh, including my parents who actually gave me this name. Right. <laughs> Seems a roundabout way to just get to call me JP. <laughs> well, it's a wonderful name because nobody else yeah. has it in the writing yeah. world, which, you know. And it's uh, often the longest in any given TOC. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, and so, yeah, so well, let's talk about you're your, uh, a weird fiction writer who writes mostly from what I can gather, like dark fiction, like, like very Lovecraftian um, influence, but you have lots of influences that we can talk about, but you know, where did you grow up and how did you get into genre fiction? Sure. So I currently live in Bangalore in South India. Mm, most of my childhood was spent in another Southern town called Hyderabad. Uh, and then around the time I was of high school age, my family moved to Bangalore, where I've lived ever since. So I was a precocious reader. Uh, I kind of started reading fluently when I was three or four. And by the time I was five, uh, the preschool I was in, the principal's daughter, for some reason, decided that I was so good at reading, they should give me a grown-up book to read. And they gave me, uh, she basically gave my parents the Fellowship of the Ring by Tolkien. Which uh, oh, I probably man, took, a great place to start, right? Yeah, it probably took me forever to read it at that age, maybe a year. Uh, and I was reading other things along with, you know, like comics and more age-appropriate books and things. But yeah, I think that sort of began. Was this in trans- Was this in translation, or were you already reading? No, no, it was in English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've been I've been Anglophone uh, from a very very young age. Uh, around the time I was a year, a year and a half. For some reason, my parents had only taught me Tamil, uh, which is my language, but they spoke to each other in English, and I became very uh, suspicious and jealous and demanded to learn this other language. And uh, <laughs> right. because there was just so, they just had so many more books in English to read and things, I wound up learning way more English than Tamil. So, yeah, I was reading it in English. Um, I think very early on, I discovered Poe. Edgar Allan Poe, and I was uh, fascinated by stories like The Fall of the House of Asher. Mm. My father had a lot of horror paperbacks growing up. 
things from the 70s, like the pan books of horror uh, from the UK. Uh, if you've encountered those books. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. Pan books of horror, various other, you know, horror paperback anthologies uh, from the 70s. And of course, he was a huge Stephen King fan. Uh, so I was already reading Stephen King before I was 13. But uh, even though I'd read a couple of stories by Lovecraft and Ramsey Campbell in anthologies, it wasn't really until I was in my late teens, uh, you know, towards the end of my college life that I really came to uh, sort of fall under the spell of that kind of thing. You know, I went through the usual phase of being a very sort of uh, isolated, withdrawn, uh, you know, a kind of person who found a lot of comfort in Lovecraft. Uh, and then I picked up a few good anthologies like The Dark Descent by David G. Hartwell, which are amazing because it just grounds you in sort of the uh, mid uh, to later 20th century horror genre. And uh, that's also when I sort of focused on the fact that there was this one guy whose stories in anthologies I would always find unsatisfying, but then they'd stay in my mind. And it turned out that that was Ramsey Campbell. So, you know, that, that thing where the ending is not in pre-fascination with weird fiction. Mm. But, uh, yeah, it doesn't all line up, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, think, uh, I think Caitlin Kiernan famously says that plot, she doesn't do plots at all, you know? And uh, uh, when I saw the quote where she says that, I, I kind of got at it. It excited me so much. <laughs> right. Well, and it's interesting, the idea that that I'm not necessarily into this author but i keep thinking about them and i keep and that's um you know for me growing up when i was like 12 or 13 it was you know i was already into movies and stuff and i had i had read asimov when i was really young because i started off with science fiction and the discovery of horror like really um i think for me the the mechanics of figuring out for me, it was, and I've said this many times on the podcast, it was the mechanics of figuring out how Stephen King wrote The Raft. That was like, a was a light bulb moment for me. Um, and so was it hearing uh, Caleb McTiernan say a plot, the plot thing, or was there a particular story that was just like a light bulb moment for you? They were like, this is how it's being constructed and this is what I want to do. Just a quick uh, digression. Uh, I, I was also a huge childhood science fiction fan and Asimov, uh, Clark, uh, Bradbury, Ursula Le Guin, these are all writers I was gobbling up, you know, in my middle school and high school years. Uh, but uh, how did horror sort of come together for me? What was the, the thing? Well, it's so, just storytelling, not necessarily horror, but just story so, story. So something really important for me was... Uh, uh, Lafcadio Hearn, uh, who's an American, it's a pseudonym of an American author who lived in Japan and studied Japanese for uh, the greater part of his life. And he had a, a book of Oriental ghost stories and uh, suddenly reading them. And one thing was the structure. It's almost oral. And sometimes there's a story within a story. And then also some of the stories, because he's taken them from traditional Japanese ghost stories, and traditional, in the case of Oriental ghost stories, and he also takes them from China, I realized that these are the kind of stories I've heard being told in my city by older people or by kids uh, who'd heard it from their grandparents and stuff. And that really clicked to me that 
you know, horror is very close to home. We have a way of passing along scary stories uh, and treasuring them. You know, they're like coins that are handed down and handed down through the ages. And I, I became very fascinated by the way horror is about things that keep bubbling up and, uh, and don't remain buried. Well, and we'll talk a lot more about that when we get into the individual stories that are here. And, and I obviously, you know, I think geography is an important part of horror, whether you're Joe R. Lansdale writing about East Texas or Stephen King writing about uh, Maine or Poppy Bright writing about New Orleans. It's, it's, it's and, and, and uh, you know, I think the, the geography of these stories definitely play a role in, in, um, in, in their power. But before we get into that, okay, we're talking about your childhood now. We're talking about your influences and things. How'd you get into metal? And uh, I mean, we could do a whole podcast just talking about how awesome Black Sabbath <laughs> is because that's something that, that you know, you and I we agree are, on. Are, are, you know, we both write to Black Sabbath, I, I believe, and uh, like to, uh, uh, and like both Ozzy and Dio eras. But, you know, um, where, where did metal come into the picture for you? Like, because you also play bass yeah. in a band and, and, and all that. So where did metal come in? So music was always big in my parents' house. Uh, you know, my parents were children of the 60s and 70s. So there's lots of Beatles, Dylan, uh, the Carpenters, a whole lot of, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, and, you know, uh, also my parents like listening to ghazals, which are an Indian Urdu form of very sad, melancholic music that's immensely popular all over the subcontinent. Um, so I had a pretty good, diverse introduction to music, and music was important to my parents. Uh, there was always either a turntable or a tape player, and evenings would often be spent with music and relaxing. Uh, when I was around 13, you know, MTV came to India, and uh, again, it was like, I didn't quite get these long-haired guitar bands. They all had these videos with really jarring lighting and uh, everyone whipping their hair about and screaming and I just didn't get it. It all sounded the same to me. And again, I think it was that dissonance and discomfort that started making me listen to it. And then of course, a couple of albums, you know, dropped, which became immensely popular among teenagers of my age. I think uh, uh, Iron Maidens, uh, uh, Somewhere in Time was a huge hit. And then uh, suddenly thrash was happening because of Metallica and uh, Ride the Lightning, which came out earlier, but sort of made its way to me then. Uh, Ride the Lightning, uh, Master of Puppets. Uh, Slayer suddenly was, uh, because I already liked a bit of horror fiction. You know, I was reading all my dad's Stephen King paperbacks and uh, all these old pan books of horror that he had. And, I heard South of Heaven by Slayer, and I thought this is the same experience, you know? Oh, that, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the that, reasons why I think metal spoke to me, really. And, like, it's weird, because I had punk introduced to me almost at the exact same time, and I kind of got more into punk, but I always liked metal music more, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, uh, you know, the imagery and the, and, and the horror of it all. And, I mean, hell, like, you know, 
uh, Anthrax was pretty much doing Stephen King book reports and like a lot of their songs. So, you know, yeah, yeah it was one of those things. But, um, you know, and it's really, it's interesting for me too, because, you know, in a lot of ways, the music becomes like this, you know, international language where like, you know, I could put on a Bad Brains record, right? And somebody in, you know, that, you know, Poland is rocking the same record and they get it. And one of the things that's really eye-opening for me is when I started seeing some of the friends that I had in the hardcore bands, like touring internationally. And, you know, like I didn't understand that, you know, like Earth Crisis were guys that lived down the street from me in Syracuse, but, um, you know, it was a whole other thing seeing them play shows in Colombia and watching videos of them playing shows in Indonesia and, and saying, like, oh, well, yeah, those kids get it too, you know, um, there. And it was really eye-opening for me. And I know that sounds kind of stupid, but the, the literature I has always made sense to me, but it was just really cool seeing, like, the, the music disseminate because to me, it, like, a lot of these hardcore bands felt like, geographical or or like tied to the towns i i was seeing them come hmm. from, right so yeah. and then it's cool because then you start seeing bands pop up from like nueva etica it's a vegan straight edge band from argentina right and they're fucking great right and you know that's kind of cool so so you guys like play the, the the metal that you play is very 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 heavy very kind of stoner metal metally kind of thing but um i've always heard like a lot of the bands that i've heard from india were i've heard a lot of death metal coming out of it yes yeah you guys yeah. love your death metal <laughs> in india too so um you know it's funny just because like here in the states we have like certain regions have their own like florida is very death metal heavy for example hmm. and uh it was just one of those things that i had always heard that india produced a lot of death metal and so it's funny because when i first heard your band i was expecting uh, mm. and your band is uh uh miskatonic a uh, gin and mis miskatonic right and i just expected it was going to be death metal, i don't know for whatever reason but uh it's very heavy stuff and i think people who like um like sleep and like that that, that that kind of stuff will really dig it um so what's the history of the band and how did that start um i played in a lot of bands in my teens and 20s in college just about everything uh alternative rock prog prog rock thrash metal uh death metal uh, just just whatever band you know you were in and what music you and those three other people were excited about uh, uh, stuff like that i was out of music for a very long time and then in the early 2000s i started hanging out with people who were actively listening to music and uh, sort of got over this incipient old guy phase that oh i only listened to music i liked in my 20s i started listening to bands that were newer to me and i started realizing that you know this whole sabbath sound that i love so much and kind of had kind of disappeared from the forefront of metal, maybe in the 90s and thousands, at least in the mainstream stuff that you were hearing, because speed and uh, power was so much uh, the thing, uh, you know, and, and, and then, of course, the whole groove metal thing, which was its whole different scene. 
but I started finding there were so many bands uh, who were actually going back into that uh, mid-tempo, grinding, spooky heaviness. Uh, and uh, there's this thing called doom metal. Uh, <laughs> so I started getting excited about playing again. Uh, made friends with people who were starting bands. Played for a couple of years, for a year and a half, for a friend's doom metal band. Uh, who you may have also heard. Uh, from Bangalore called Bevarsi. And, uh, but I wanted to play something a little, I don't know, just uh, a little different from what Bevarsi did. They're more, maybe they're more groovy. They're more uh, Caius. And uh, I don't know, their, their sound has also changed over the last three albums they released. But I wanted to do something that could go really, really slow, like grindingly slow at times, and could also sort of culminate with really fast parts here and there. Yeah, yeah, it's so. great. It's really great stuff. Um, and of course, is, the name is a horror uh, <laughs> reference, you know, uh, <laughs> which of course, you know, uh, our my listeners should really appreciate. But it's it's really good stuff. Like, how how uh, can people track down the music, and and then we'll move on to your writing. Oh yeah, uh, we're on we're on Bandcamp, uh, where you can hear sample songs and buy downloads if you want. Uh, but I think both our albums are up for free on YouTube. So, you know, absolutely feel free to go there and listen to Jin and Miskatonic. That's D-J-I-N-N-A-N-D-M-I-S-K-A-T-O-N-I-C. Jin and Miskatonic. And yeah, feel free to uh, listen free on YouTube. Uh, or I think we're on most streaming uh, platforms. Uh, there's also a split we did with Sky Shadow Obelisk. A fantastic doom band from Providence, Rhode Island. And you can find that on the Sky Shadow Obelisk Bandcamp. Oh, that's uh, really fitting. Uh, I believe. A band from Providence <laughs> with you yeah. guys. Very fitting. That was super cool. Yeah. yeah. And he did a he did a he did a vinyl release of it too, which I think is still available. And I was quite excited because do you know Tad Doyle? Mm-hmm. He did the mastering for that uh, split. Oh wow. So, yeah, he made it sound amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's really, 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 really good stuff. And for those of us who who, who like, um, uh, you know, when I uh, I actually listened to to it quite a bit um, when I was reading your book, just because I thought that would be a cool combo. Because I like to listen to music when I read. So, and I, I and uh, doom metal is one of my favorite uh, things to listen to when I'm reading, anyways. So I I listen to a lot of uh, my type ride and. and you know, I mean, I mean, I just go to like, you know, people who like this, like, you know, and I do a lot of doom metal. I don't even know, you know, because I just uh, I find yeah. it so, so, so I definitely did that um, when when listening to your book. And then the good thing was is that uh, when you made a reference to Massive Attack and one of the stories into a particular song, I was able to immediately like because I listened, I, I put it on, and I was like, oh, that's kind of a neat moment <laughs> for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, so you started taking writing seriously. Um, I believe you said I believe you said before that that it was you started writing in college, or were you writing earlier than that? Were you were you experimenting with this just because I know a lot of us who grew up reading seriously, like you can't help but want to tell your own stories when you're like so into these stories as a young person. I hope tried writing i would write great beginnings 
and uh, then not know what to do. I think I only, in my last couple of years of college, uh, started writing stories in my notebook. In the beginning, really basic, simple ideas, you know, like a half-baked Philip K. Dick or, uh, you know, schlock horror ripoff. Uh, but at least tell the story from beginning to end. Uh, put something down on paper that at least was complete in itself, even if it wasn't very good. Uh, but I really, and then I did a lot of experimental writing for many years, stream of conscious, concrete poetry, just a whole lot of uh, just, just trying out things, very influenced by William Burroughs and guys like that. And it was only really around my mid mid twenties uh, that I tried uh, starting to write genre fiction. Uh, for a long time, I struggled to write science fiction, but uh, it was never convincing to me. And uh, then I kind of had this breakthrough that uh, I think uh, I think I've heard a lot of people telling me a lot of weird stories about things happening in Bangalore. You know, over the years, like maybe uh, hanging out with stoners and uh, people just try to uh, scare each other with creepy tales they'd heard about, oh, this abandoned house in this neighborhood has a talking bat in it. And, oh, there's a house uh, outside the city where there's a woman and she's not actually there. And if you come back in the morning, you'll just see a broken down house with a skeleton in it. And, you know, all these tall tales that friends would tell me at parties or at you know, jam sessions and things like that to spook each other out. And I started thinking these would be so great if they were put together into a story. But uh, I found that just retelling, you know, oral legends wasn't interesting enough for me. I started wanting to put in an overarching storyline that uh, I started pulling from my own life. as is probably obvious if you read through the stories and come tomorrow. And I found that it didn't take a lot just tease out patterns of strangeness and disorientation and sort of take them to logical or illogical conclusions. Yeah, that would be the years when I was 26, 27, 28, that I really sort of caught on fire and started figuring out how I wanted to do this and what I wanted to do. Right. Now, as far as, like, what happened for me, I, I just always enjoyed talking with you about genre fiction and stuff online and and, you know, it's one of those weird things of the internet where I, you know, we've never been in the same place ever before. This is only the second time we've ever talked. But I feel like I know you really well because, you know, we've interacted for literally years online. It's one of those weird things of, about the internet. And I had always meant to read your work. Like, I kept always, like, making a note, like, hey, I, I, gotta, I gotta read JP's stuff. I gotta, I gotta read it. And so what happened with Come Tomorrow was that when you came on on Dickheads, then, then it was like, that was when I was like, all right, tomorrow I'm ordering the book and I'm, I'm going to do this and I'm going to read it. And um, I had read a couple of your stories here and there. So I knew you were a good writer and I knew I was excited about it and all that. And one of the interesting things too is that, and I already kind of mentioned this, I, I love geography in writers and in stories like um i love uh, you know i haven't spent a ton of time in maine but i i feel like i know maine a little bit because i've read stephen king and then 
it's kind of one of those weird things where like I have a coworker who's from Maine and you know we talk all the time about you know what Stephen King has taught everyone else about Maine right and so when I when we came to these stories there's there's the you do such a great job of setting the geography and using uh, Bangalore as as kind of a character in these stories. But it's also the problem, uh, <clears throat> you know, the kind of the balance of it is that, you know, you as a writer don't have to write about Bangalore <laughs> for us. However, because we know how the industry is these days, I'm sure that there's a pressure from some people, like if you were doing major publishing or whatever, they they would be pushing you like, oh, we, we want to have Indian stories and we want to have Indian representation, right? And so there's a balancing act that kind of comes with like wanting to write about what you know and the place that you, you know, you live in without, you know, like I don't want to seem like a tourist you know, I, my point is, is that I, you know, I loved getting this view into a part of the world that I don't know, into the geography, but mostly because it's the geography of this person that I'm becoming friends with is telling me about their life and, and, and where they're from and giving me this experience. So I don't know, that's a lot of words, but I just wanted to put out there that, that, um, that is a tricky balance for you, I'm sure, right? Yeah. The, the thing for me is that can, it can only ever be personal. Yeah. Uh, I'm not writing for Indians. I'm not writing about India. I'm not representing Bangalore. It's what I know. And I'm able to, I'm able to fill a story with texture and with feeling if, if the setting is kind of vivid to me and part of how I think about things. Uh, I was very influenced by writers like Peter Ackroyd, who's a very eclectic British writer, uh, whose works sometimes veer into the nearly supernatural, like Hawksmoor. Uh, is a very strange novel by him about a um, 16th century architect uh, building seven churches in London after the Great Fire. And uh, the geography of the city and the magical patterns built into it. And then the sense of the city in so many uh, Victorian authors, right? Like the city of London and Dickens. And uh, to take an example sort of closer uh, to, the, to the genre space we're in, um, uh, what's, what's, what's it by uh, Fritz Lieber, Our Lady of Darkness, uh, where San Francisco becomes uh, a sort of a, a feature, a character, a force in the story. And I don't know if it's you or someone else who, I, I'm probably thinking it's you because you've done some uh, literary uh, nerdy traveling recently, but I know that people have mentioned about visiting the places in San Francisco where Fritz Lieber was writing that book and sort of looking out over the same views that are so much a part of uh, that novel. Yeah, and uh, it just seems so powerful to me to set a book so deeply, to set a story so deeply in a geography you know. Uh, yeah, and... yeah, absolutely, and and yeah, yeah. Well, we were talking about 
before we start recording, because I recently did the trip to mm. Philip K. Dick's hometown and visited. We went to all of his childhood homes, and which there was quite a few, uh, and um, you know, and, and seeing those things. And then I know I haven't read yet because we're doing a publication order, but eventually we're going to do Voices from the Street and the books right. that we wrote, wrote about Berkeley. And I just know that I, I probably wouldn't have been as into those books as I'm going to be if I didn't have the experience of going to the place and, you know, and, and seeing where the pet store where he bought horse meat uh, for food was, which is, by the way, a dojo now. Um, wow. <laughs> just, just putting it out there. It's kind of interesting. There's, there's a the karate dojo there now. Uh, but, you know, seeing those places, it, it, it like really it adds something to it but when you get an author who writes so vividly about a place you just you really feel transported and that's one of the things that's really cool about it and um and when i talked about that balance that's one of the things is because you know the greatest compliment one of the greatest compliments i can give this collection come tomorrow is that um i did feel transported in it i did feel um and not just geographically, but also into the headspace of that, that I think you were going for with writing it is because, and maybe this is because I know you and I know a lot of what, what your influences are, but um, I could really, I could really feel that. And that's one of the things about, I love, for example, I'll just take one story, for example, like when you read Stephen King's um, Jerusalem's Lot, the story. That's where you first see like, oh, this guy grew up reading Lovecraft, right? Yeah. And there's, there's, there's a little bit of this. And when you make that connection, when you later read something by Lovecraft and you go, oh, now I see where Stephen King was coming from with this. And I personally love seeing influence. I love detecting the influence on writers. Like that's something I enjoy. So when I see a moment that I go, oh, this is very Philip K. Dick, or this is very H.P. Lovecraft in a story, I enjoy that. And there's a couple moments in this book where I, 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 I just, I felt that revelation and I, I just felt that it, it's a very comforting feeling for me as a reader. So just wanted to put that out there as another thing. Now, at this point, I think listeners should know that, um, uh, I think I sold this book enough that I think you should go and pick up Come Tomorrow. I, I got it on the big bad Amazon, but um, there are multiple places where, where um, yeah. you, you can find it. And um, uh, we're going to get into spoiler territory as far as like we're going to actually talk about the stories really in depth. And some of these are details that might be more fun for you to discover on your own. So if you're out there listening, uh, I hope we've done enough to, to sell Come Tomorrow and then you'll check it out. Uh, JP also has other books that uh, I'm going to be eventually reading, uh, the ones that, but this was the most recent and that's one of the reasons why I picked it up is because I wanted to, to get the most recent book. And, uh, and I highly recommend it. So go get it. Now we're going to talk about the stories. Uh, and the book opens with the, with the title story, um, which is kind of a ghost story inside of a ghost story. And, you know, we, I, I'm currently writing an article about Man in the High Castle, so I'm thinking a lot about 
uh, puzzles inside of puzzles, <laughs> because mm. that's one of the things that's great about Man in the High Castle is that it's puzzles inside of puzzles. And, and what's neat about this title story, Come Tomorrow, is that it's a great way to start off the book because um, it it is a ghost inside of a ghost inside of a ghost is what I got out of the story. Can you, can you yeah. talk about where the story came from? Is there a specific story or, uh, you know, what, what's, what's give us some more details on this one. Cause I, and then I want to get into the rats because the rats is a really cool part of it. <laughs> so uh, the origins of the story began when I was around 16 or 17 and uh, there was actually a plague scare in India at the time. And I was in my first year at college and there was reports that there'd been a couple of cases of the bubonic plague in a city up north. Uh, and there was just kind of fear hanging around. You know, the internet wasn't that big, which uh, on the one hand meant that rumors and misinformation didn't spread the way it does today. But on the other hand, it also meant that all your information was coming from the newspaper, from the radio and TV news. So you just got little bite-sized bits of information being served out to you, right? So a story would gather uh, a lot of velocity from the fact that we didn't have much more access. And uh, me and my friends would joke around on campus, well, see you later, don't catch plague, take care, bye, <laughs> and things <Right>. like that. <laughs> uh, even though, you know, it never, I don't think it ever became a full-scale outbreak, but you know, there are occasional cases where the bubonic plague is still detected in uh, countries with poor hygiene and outbreaks of rats and things like that. Uh, so this was what was going on. And around that time, in the neighborhood that my family had moved to, I started seeing these chalk messages written on doors, which in Kannada, which is uh, the language of the state of Karnataka, which Bangalore is the capital city of, in Canada, the signs read Nale Ba, which means come tomorrow. And because Bangalore is a very multilingual uh, city, a lot of them also wrote in English, come tomorrow. Uh, and I started wondering what this is about. And uh, people told me, oh, yeah, yeah. In olden times, when the plague would come, you know, there were outbursts of outbreaks of plague in India in the 19th century. Uh, plague had come to Bangalore once in the 19th century, uh, you know, when the British ruled the country. Uh, so the plague came to be associated with a sort of combination of plague goddesses. Uh, there's actually a tradition of plague or fever goddesses in parts of India, and it's connected with the plague and with warding it off. If you pray to her, she keeps it away from you. Uh, so these are supposedly addressed to partly invoke her, but also partly there's this legend that the ghost who carries the plague goes from house to house looking for you, you know, to spread that infection. And she's an old woman. But if she reads a sign saying come tomorrow, for some reason, for some reason she's very literal. So she'll just uh, leave you alone that night. It's kind of like the Chinese vampires where you throw rice in front of them. So they yeah. have to count all the grains of rice. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah, that's cool. That's cool mythology. And well, one of the, the things, too, about the story, uh, the, the most evocative, one of the things I like about this story is that it builds very well. It's a, it's a story that kind of, like, builds dread and I, I appreciate that you know uh, as a doom metal guy you had a lot of experience with building dread um, <laughs> but 
the 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 rat the scene with the with the rats with the character who um and i had the the quote the sun rose and set and rose again many times over but the rats still covered me a foul cloak adhered to me no matter what i did and i did not i did not make out the streets i was running through of which streets i was running through this, this, this is a really cool part of the story that was very evocative and um you know, and just gave me like shivers because it's like the idea that you know that you can't shake that feeling of just being covered in the rats. Because I, I mean, I got the sense more that it was a feeling, or was a there weren't actually rats there, but it was the feeling of it. And um, you know, it's it's a it's a very powerful moment. But um, but yeah, so you chose this story to to open the collection for. For, well, it's the title story, so for, for obvious reasons. Were there any other reasons besides just the uh, uh, for choosing this as the opener? Because I think it's a great opener myself. Thanks. The book is uh, mostly arranged chronologically uh, in order of writing uh, and publication, uh, except uh, I don't think Axis of Discordance was the last story in it that was written but it's the longest story. So I thought it made more sense to end with that. Uh, so I arranged it in the order it was written in, but uh, also because I wrote them in this order, um, they sort of, I don't know, I feel they move better this way. Uh, I feel like Come Tomorrow is very much a young man's story. It's, it's a high school or college guy losing his way. Dancer of the Dying is about slightly older people. Uh, so it's, the Song of the Eukarya. I feel like the stories also follow a kind of chronology, though I won't go out of my way to, to codify it or, or, or make it very precise. But even though some things happen in them, uh, which would make some of the other ones impossible, I kind of see them in this timeline, which is why I started with Come Tomorrow. Now, uh, the second story... Uh presents a, a kind of uh, paranoia in the character who's driven by an intense form of pattern recognition. And, and this, this was the story that um, I, I felt like had, uh, well, there's a way to look at this as Lovecraftian, but I, I personally saw this as, as, as very Dickian, very Phil Dickian in, in, in the sense that and, and a lot of times he's underrated for his ability to write like just really terrifying moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, Scanner Darkly is an example of that. Three Stigmata is an example of that. Um, and, and just throughout the years, there, there's moments in Dick's writing where he, where he, everyone knows that he writes paranoia well because <laughs> he's a pretty paranoid guy. But uh, the way he expresses it in there is, is really interesting. And, this was a story that when I was writing my review and, you know, when I, one of the reasons why I do reviews of all the fiction that I read is a lot of times when I'm reading, I don't catch everything that when I go back and look at us, when I dog ear, you know, and look, your my copy is dog eared for all these pages that I found interesting. Right. And um, a lot of times when I go back and I, try to figure out like why did I dog ear this page <laughs> right um, is the most I learn about a book and a lot of times uh, for example uh, 
River Solomon's Unkindness of Ghosts was mm. a book that I did not enjoy when I read it. Mm. And then when I went back to write about it and I looked at all the pages that I dog-eared, I realized it was a good book that I didn't get on first right. impression, right? And this story, the second story, uh, uh, Dancer, of, I'm getting the title, Dancer of the Dying, was a story that uh, I ended up rereading from- Do you mean, uh, do you mean Dancer of the Dying or the Dancer Song of the Dying, of... yeah. Yeah. No, not yeah. Song of the Eucharion. Well, it's the one with the pattern recognition. I thought that was the yeah. second story. Yeah. yeah. No, it's the third one, Song of the Eucharion. Oh, okay. Sorry, I'm confusing them. But No problem. The, That's the one on page 32. Yes. Okay. So this is the one that I reread. Hmm. Uh, now, granted, like when I read and wrote this review, it was a couple months ago, and that's on, that's on me because I probably should have had you on right, right when I read it. But this story is one that I ended up, instead of just going back and, and looking at little parts that, that I found curious, I ended up rereading from beginning to end and really got a, a, an excellent experience in rereading it because I think the second time um, uh, I really got the sense of hopelessness that the patterns caused this character, right? And one of the things that I think is cool about this story is that this character gets lost in patterns and it's really easy when you, for example, read a story or watch a movie about a drug addict to go, oh God, that's, that's terrible. Like I would hate to be, you know, I'd hate to be that person. And what's really great about this story is that the first time I read it, I was like, okay, well, he sees patterns, whatever. <laughs> right. And the second time I read it was when I was like, oh God, that'd be crippling and awful. Like yeah. you, you couldn't live with that because just every minute you'd be like looking like, oh, look at the screen in my window and all the, the boxes in it. And now I'm looking at this pattern and I can't, I can't get out of it and I can't move on. Mm. And, and so this, this story really, um, you know, and I, I know you actually referred to the character refers to his marvelous, terrible brain, right? And, uh, you know, I just, I want to highlight this story as, as just really, really freaking effective and, and great horror. What's, what's the story behind this one? And, and what more can you tell us about this? Because to me, this story was, it's my second favorite in the collection. We'll get to my favorite in a little bit. But Dan, this story really worked. And, uh, and, and that feeling of hopelessness is what I got, especially on the second reading. Well, I was very interested in fungus for a while. <laughs> it gets really, really, really damp and humid during the monsoon seasons that we have here. And it's just a season of tremendous rains. And uh, fungus grows pretty fast if you're not careful. And uh, I think it was in that dank atmosphere that I started thinking about it. And like anyone, I've always had a little bit of pattern recognition through my life. And I think it was just one of the themes that I really wanted to put into a story. Uh, but I was also uh, both, uh, I'd been writing stories that were so focused on the narrator being 
or the main character being the person that it happens to. I wanted to have a narrator who watches it happen to someone else. So that's why I tried to create this character Swati who talks about her boyfriend Raman who, who has this progressive pattern of mission ability. And so at this point, structuring a story very much seemed to me to be like taking reality like a fish tank and dropping one little drop of something terrible into it and watching it take over everything. You've read uh, uh, Cat's Cradle by, by um, Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, so that's the one at Ice Nine, isn't it? Yeah, so it's just a new from form Indiana, of, by the way, my home state. So there you go. <laughs> so ice nine is this new form of ice molecule that's been developed that turns any moisture that it comes into contact with into ice instantly. And uh, stop me if I'm remembering it wrongly, uh, because I, I read so, this. But it's also been twenty years since I read it. So same yeah. Uh, so I'll, so at this point, I was thinking of stories uh, of constructing a story, basically like making a little fish tank called reality and dropping a bit of ice nine into it. So the hopelessness is sort of a result of that. It's because I wanted to take one element, one thing, the fungi, and, and just blow it out of proportion. Just, just, just watch it, you know, take over every, every molecule in that little fish tank. Yeah, it's, it's a really powerful story. It, um, it's the one that I think, uh, has, I, yeah, like I said, I just, I, ended up rereading the whole thing uh, and uh but my favorite story in the book is uh uh shadow me no more oh okay um, now the reason why i think this was my favorite um well it's a surreal horror story and um in some ways it's 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 the most it's the one that i feel like could have been in weird tales in the 30s right in a lot of ways you know um i know that there might be moments in there that 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 break it from that but i but i just it felt very weird tales to me and um it, it's a very paranoid story about a person who is haunted by their shadow that their shadow itself is the thing that they're scared of and, and tortured by. And there's a part, uh, I can't grab my shadow's throat, can't shut up what never makes a noise. He follows me everywhere and I can't help but read the terrible knowledge we share to swagger. And, uh, you know, it's funny because like one of the things I loved when I was a kid about Stephen King is that, uh, is that a lot of times you'd say, you, you like, oh, he wrote, uh, Miss Todd's shortcut about a particular strip of road, or you know, he looked at a raft in, in the in the in the middle of the lake and said, "I can build a story out of that." Uh, and you look at all those original last rung of the ladder, like he's looking at a ladder and he has this whole story come to his head, right? And what I liked about this story was I got this impression of like, you know, oh, it's a story about his his shadow. And it felt like in that tradition of looking at this one little thing and saying, I can build a horror story out of, out of that, but it's really effective. And it's really frightening because if you, 
no horror works unless you put yourself into the character's shoes. And so if you put yourself into the character's shoes and you're really just bothered or scared of or annoyed by your shadow, like, it ain't going anywhere. Anytime you turn on a light or you stand in the sun or whatever, it's going to be there. What's the story with this one? Because, and I think you should be really proud of this story because I think it's super fucking creepy and great and Obviously, it's my favorite in the collection. Like, I, I just think it's it's gangbusters. I think it's great. I think it's the best one. Uh, I loved, 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 loved this story. Tell me about it. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. So, it, this story sort of uh, emerged from the ruins of another story. Uh, I was trying to write a story about. Uh, about a, a mall in Bangalore where a fire happened. And uh, it was quite a fancy mall catering to quite a upmarket crowd. It had a pub and shopping, you know, designer clothes stores and, and this and that. And because it was badly maintained, there was an electric shot and the place went up in flames. And for years afterwards, it remained dilapidated and abandoned. So you'd go past uh, this old abandoned TGI Fridays and you'd look into it and you know they'd still be the sign saying it's always Friday in here but inside all you'd see would be the gutted out floor and the concrete walls and smoke stains and puddles of water that had seeped in and and, and just there was still this heavy you know stink uh, just just the greasy feel of a place where there's been a huge fire and I wanted to write something based on that uh and that's why this story has a kind of filthy feel to it. Uh, because I started wanting to write about a petty uh, criminal, you know, someone, someone who's just violent and robs and uh, just naturally starts killing for no particular reason than greed. Uh, and who hides out here and uh, is haunted by the shadows here. But then it, it all felt like there were too many things being thrown together. And it seemed to me that the idea of a killer who gets scared of his own shadow was the important thing in that story. So I threw away an entire first draft and I started again just like this with here you come like a hound, my shadow hot on my heels, here you come like a bloodhound hot on the trail. Right. Yeah, it's so good. So good. And, and this to me, and that idea of a killer who's scared of his own shadow, that is exactly like the kind of inspiration that I assumed was there for the story just because, um, you know, it just fits into that tradition. And I think Stephen King is the best example of that, but I think everybody in horror does that at one point or another. You can look at, you know, Barker, anybody, like, that they're going to have, like, one one moment that they build off of, uh, off of those things. I just thought that was great. Yeah. You know, like the telltale heart is basically someone who's so guilty about what he's done that uh, he goes mad. Uh, the telltale heart by Edgar Allan Poe. Right. So I guess it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely one of those enduring things where your own mind sort of drags you down. Now, some of these stories, like, they connect more than, they're, they're all individual stories, but that there, there are aspects of it, like, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it seemed like that there was a character who kind of 
showed up again and there's this idea of this person that works in advertising yeah kenneth yeah and and so because that whole idea of working in advertising and advertising being part of it i have to ask because it is something that comes up more than once in the collection so you know i mean obviously like with philip k dick it's that the working class aspect of his characters are so important that he makes up these insane jobs like tire regroover <laughs> stuff like that that they're all in there but it had to mean something that this person works in advertising was there a deeper meaning that i didn't catch on to or or is it no, just kind of a accident am i reading too because much? It's, it's because i've worked in advertising uh, and uh, i was just very determined with this this group of stories to write very much from things that i know firsthand you know so it would be honest and authentic uh i was i was very determined not to uh not to be too fanciful in the fundamentals of my stories so i just decided to write from things i really know well i worked in advertising i worked in online content i worked in the media for huge amounts of time so i wanted to write about someone from that background and and that kind of sphere of life i think i think probably the story we just discussed an exception because it's a criminal who's the narrator of shadow me no more but uh, it just came from this very simple sense that uh, uh, i just felt it would be much more authentic to write from life right no in that sense and i maybe get ahead of myself well no i'll come back to that so I, i was about to go somewhere else but i want to talk about some other things in the stories uh there was one story with uh, uh and i already mentioned this uh her character talks about uh getting on a motorcycle and putting on protection by massive attack uh because i was listening to music as i was reading this i said you know i went and turned on that song and it, it actually like so then i was like that was a really neat moment uh when you wrote that did you did you think about how that song plays into like the vibe you were creating because like yeah yeah I got um I was like the perfect case study because I was able to yeah, actually yeah. put the song on. So um, you know especially because these days the way we read uh, we can pretty much pull up anything that's uh, that's being referenced, you know. Right. Um, like when I was reading one of uh, Elizabeth Hand's uh, Casneri novels, she talks about being in a pub and this woman uh, that she's hanging out with puts on be my baby by the ronettes on the jukebox and start singing along and the song is so beautifully described that i immediately had to listen to it and i thought wow i mean the scene was amazing in itself in this elizabeth hand novel because it made me run to the song but then knowing the song i was like wow this is adding so much i think i understand these characters so much more and you know it's optional you don't have to run to the song which is why i also quote some of the lyrics that to me were thematically important to why this song comes into his life at that moment you know it it's kind of him decompressing from this ultra masculine ultra brutal environment that he's gotten steeped in and trying to find his way out of it uh with first of all an electronic song with uh uh you know very different uh a different uh, mood uh, it's got tracy thorn's voice on it Uh, Tracy Thorn from Everything But the Bride, and she's singing. 
you know, she does a little bit of gender flipping. It starts with stand in front of me, take the force of the blow. She says, uh, you know, you're a woman. Uh, I mean, she starts flipping uh, the gender of, of, of the narrator of the song as, as the song progresses, which I thought was so interesting and tied into, I was really trying to write about, and it sounds very banal when I put it like this, but with No More Iron Cross, I was trying to write about the toxic masculinity in the heavy metal uh, subculture, having seen a little too much of it uh, in some of the years surrounding the writing of the story. If, so for me, protection... The story has um, uh, No More Iron Cross, which is, is, a, which is a story about, about a metal man, pretty much, right? So um... there's, uh, there's, there's Axes of Discordance, which is about a metal band. Okay, that's the one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is no more Iron Cross. Okay. Well, like I said, it was a couple months ago I read it, so uh, I remember the stories very well. Just sometimes jumbling up the titles, but um, of so, so, you know, what's what you're talking about? It's it's like I just had that experience with reading a, a Scanner Darkly, where uh, Phil mentions a random restaurant in Orange County in one of the parts and I was like I wonder if that's a real restaurant and I googled it and it was this real oh, restaurant wow. that was like a breakfast spot in the 70s right wow. and uh, so that adds to the surreal nature of the Philip K. Dick future you know because he's obviously writing about the present and then just adds scramble suits or whatever but um but it was interesting because like I could look up that restaurant and see like, oh, well, he's talking about this like, you know, greasy spoon breakfast spot that, you know, and this post that I read about it was like, you know, 70 year institution in Orange County closes like in the 90s. Right. But it's one that he mentions in Scanner Darkly. And, I, wow. you know, if I read that when it came out in 1977, I'm not going to look up. I'm just like, it's just a name that rolls over me. Right. And it's just a thing. And it's like one of those things, like with this story it was like that song, like I had a feeling that you weren't just mentioning the song for no reason. Yeah. Like I wanted to get into it. So, um, you know, there's a, there is a sort of, uh, overuse sometimes of rock and roll lyrics, especially I think at some point in the eighties, Every uh, horror short story seemed to have rock and roll lyrics sort of crammed into them. I think people imitating Stephen King, who at one time used to do tons of that. But yeah, I've made a point. Yeah, I've made a point as a music lover not to gratuitously insert songs in, but uh, in such a way that if you were to actually go and sit with that song, it would make sense to you with the story. It, it's like an extra feature that if you want, you can go and listen to those songs and it's going to give you something tied into the story. I wouldn't put in a piece of music at all, usually. Yeah, so, my, so there my, are, my general, there are general, a few. Hmm. My rule of thumb with that is if I'm hearing the music in my head yeah. or if it plays a part of the scene that's like really important, like I'll, I'll write it in sometimes and a lot of times it doesn't make it to the second draft. But hmm. You know, I, I, I hear what you're saying because the thing is, well, for me too, like, you know, with, and I'm sure you feel this too, is when you listen to some kind of obscure music, if I write a scene about, um, you know, the big takeover from Bad Brains 
maybe that'll work for some people. But if I write, uh, you know, if the music I'm hearing in my head is Stan Kowalski, the random mod band that <laughs> existed in, in my hometown of Bloomington, Indiana during the 80s, and no one's ever heard but me. Well, sure, maybe one of those songs occurs to me, but that's not going to do anybody else any, any, any good. And mm-hmm. if they can find it online, maybe. I don't know. I'm not going to say I'm against it because, it, you know, every story has its own rules and, and does its own thing. Well, that's a really interesting point. I think I wouldn't possibly refer to uh, like in the late 90s and early 1000s, I was very steeped in the local band scene. And I remember and love certain songs that my friends' bands had composed and would play at every gig, but never recorded, you know? Yeah. Uh, no one could afford to record. There were very few recording studios. Most of them didn't know how to handle metal or rock music anyway. Uh, so there are songs I know from then which a person from Bangalore of my generation will know, but I think it would be a little too gratuitous uh, to <laughs> use them in a song unless, unless it's in a story, unless it's like a really long story and have the time to build in the history of what this was and what it was about, but not as a relatively concise reference in a short story. Well, and I think that that's a product too of the pre-internet age or before like the ability to get anything you want whenever you want it because yeah. um, and I've often thought about putting together a panel on this podcast where old punk rockers, hardcore kids, metalheads talk about how they discovered music before the internet um, and where they found it because the ge- geography of it was so much more important. For example, like I grew up in Indiana, okay? I grew up in a small college town that was sandwiched between the two big cities. The big city to the north of us was Indianapolis. The big city to the south of us was Louisville, right? And those two towns had very different scenes for punk rock and hardcore. And Indianapolis had a different, very different scene between the north side, which were all rich kids, and the south side, which were working class kids. And I always liked the bands from the South Side better, right? Always, always. And then, but when I look at how before the internet, these two these two scenes like kind of developed their own sound because they, these bands grew up more isolated. Like, yeah, they were influenced by New York bands and LA bands and all that. But Louisville had a sound, Indianapolis had a sound. Chicago had a sound and all these cities. And I'm sure when, what you're talking about is, you know, your local scene had a, had a sound too, right? Yeah. And I think with the internet, it breaks down more because if you want to be like, or, you know, if you play a style of metal that's popular in South, South Florida now, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter where you are. You can be anywhere in the world because yeah. the internet democratizes that thing so that's a tangent but i'm very interested in, in uh, how the the local scene relates to especially the, this last story that's about, about a metal band because um you know a lot of people who don't you know who have myopic american way of thinking or european or whatever they're not thinking about when they think of Bangalore, the last thing they're thinking about is the metal scene. 
right? It's, you know what I'm talking about? Because they're, they're, they just, they have their, their stereotypes, you know? I know better because I've seen videos of my friends on tour playing, you know, Indonesia and seeing that there's a, a scene there. So I've had my mind open to that. So like, but a lot of times um, that is something that's a new window for people is to see like, you know, and it's dumb. They should realize that you guys are listening to all the same music as, as the rest of us. But that is a thing that maybe eye-opening for people is like, oh, what's the metal scene like in India? Because at the same time, you guys got a metal scene, but you also grew up in the culture that you did. So it's going to be different than the Florida death metal scene, for example. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. So there is a question in there somewhere. But I, but I like writing about the metal scene, what was you know, that had to be cool for you in this respect, but you also had to have something that you were trying to say. You said you were talking about the toxic masculinity of the metal scene and the one story. So what were you wanting to express about the metal scene in Bangalore and that story? I'm sorry, I did a lot of talking there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I enjoyed that. Uh, it began very literally with... Uh going to a gig and seeing a guy that I've known off and on for years uh, wearing an iron cross. Yeah, a piece of memorabilia that he got a hold of. And yeah, I know Lemmy wears an iron cross and all that, but... Uh, I'm not a huge Lemmy fan myself, but... Yeah, it's, it's not one of the things I actually appreciate about Lemmy, and it's, uh, it's a very strange symbol, isn't it? It's, uh, it's got the baggage that it does, and why would you want to wear it? Uh, like, especially as a brown person uh, who's not ignorant of history, why would you want to wear the Iron Cross? It's it's not just a cool, edgy, uh, heavy metal insignia. It's something that became associated with uh, with Third Reich, with uh, you know, with things that uh, you shouldn't possibly want to associate yourself with, and uh, you know all these. There's this whole culture where, well, you know, I mean, uh, we're not political. And obviously, like, we don't subscribe to that kind of ideology, but it's just about the music, man. Just about the music. And I don't mind listening to, this is not me. This is me uh, channeling one of these guys. I don't, uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't mind listening to Graveyard or Screwdriver. If the riffs are good, the riffs are good. And no, I mean, and then, and then, and then it, you start realizing that it's not so much that they're apolitical, but they're secretly kind of turned on by fascism, you know? They're kind of turned on by that, that, that uh, uh, atavistic violence contained in it. I think we spoke briefly online about The Iron Dream by Norman Spinrad. And the novel by Adolf Hitler, which is The Iron Dream, kind of captures that atavistic violence, you know? Uh, yeah. uh, uh, the guy in the novel is carrying these phallic uh, implements, uh, weapons that he kills the uh, weaklings and the under people with. And it's, it's, uh, it's that same thing which I feel I see too much of in metal scenes everywhere, but also locally where um, because the music is loud and angry and sounds violent, you think it's about anger and violence wherever it, it stems from. And uh, it, it becomes a kind of confirmation of your own worst uh, uh, the worst parts of your own character. And it just becomes this way uh, for men to explore their violent, non-thinking 
knuckle dragging sides together and say, hey man, it's just about the music. Uh, and I I was just so horrified by seeing this person in an iron cross. You know, I keep returning to that, but it was a very, it was a very stark moment for me. It was like, what? Yeah. Uh, maybe, I, maybe I overreacted. I don't know. But I do believe in the power of symbols, so. you know. And to just see that in front of me in my city on a guy that I've known on a, you know, friendly basis for over a decade. I'm like, why would you do this? And I just wanted to drill deep into that culture. But my imagination working the way it does, it, it didn't quite follow a literal route. I instead went through this whole metaphor of the Axe Lodge and the things that happened there. And uh, in the end, of course, it spirals off into its own twist in reality for whatever reason. <laughs> but yeah, it, it just became, it, just, it was just something that really sat so badly with me. I had to spit it out into a story. Yeah. Well, okay. So then getting here towards the end is uh, you write so wonderfully about Bangalore and, um, you know, you do a really good job of creating the geography there, but it's not your job to write about Bangalore. You can write about any place you want. You can write about, I could see one of the good things about like controlling your art, you know, publishing your own work is that you're not beholden to anyone telling you like that you have to write about it. And a lot of, and I, cause I could tell you that if you wanted to, the publishing industry would fall over themselves to, to, to get a book like this, you know, um, I believe in, in the right situation. And so my question is, I mean, you write so wonderfully about Bangalore and, and you make a really good argument for like how you like to write the personal and you like to write these things, but you know, you could write about any place you want. Like, have you, have you, you said you didn't find your science fiction convincing. Have you, do you have any plans to, to, to write a, a, about fictional worlds or other places, or are you gonna you gonna stick to Bangalore for the time being, or do you not know where you're going? So, so a couple of different answers to that. Oh yeah, I think this book may have come out in the time since we last spoke. So I have a story in an anthology called the Golanks Book of South Asian Science Fiction, Volume Two. Yeah, uh, but I'm looking forward to getting that book. It's on my list. So, so in a sense, uh, I have. And I feel that some of my stories could loosely, even in this book, like a threshold hypothesis could very loosely be Phil Dickian science fiction. Uh, even though it's set in Bangalore, uh, I don't think, I've written some stories which are not in this collection because the theme for this collection was stories centered in Bangalore. I've written a couple of stories set in Goa, which is a place I've been spending more and more time in. I've also written a few stories that are sort of set in a kind of symbolic realm, which is not specified. Uh, in some, it's vaguely India. In some, it's not even that. It's just some place. Uh, but I'm not particularly interested personally in creating a fictional universe. Uh, I don't have any particular interest in that at all, like a far future universe or a fantasy universe. Uh, if at all I write in unspecified locations, it would be like a fractured reflection of uh, our world. 
you know, like, have you read much Brian Evanson? Oh, yeah. Tons of Brian Evanson. So a lot of his stories seem to be set in this vaguely post-apocalyptic uh, middle America, you know? Yeah. Uh, there are these remnants of something that seems like uh, a Southern Baptist or evangelical religion, but people are very broken down. But then he complicates it by having a lot of his characters have Eastern European names. So I like that kind of delocalization where the where of the story is not very clear. Yeah. Uh, so I might explore more of that. And the other thing I find very interesting is the stories of uh, M. John Harrison. Less his science fiction and more his uh, you know stories like The Course of the Heart and all his short stories, which are very set in Britain. And they're very British or English. I forget which is which all the time. England, Britain, Great Britain, the UK. I know it's you're supposed to use one and not the other. And they do get upset if you mix things up. <laughs> but it's okay. We didn't, uh, we didn't uh, declare independence to worry about these things. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, um, yeah. So what I was saying about M. John yeah, Harrison was there's a lot of... Uh, uh, Englishness running through these stories of his, but they also feel geographically dispersed. So I'm very interested in trying to explore more of that. But I think I would always tend to return to something Indian at the core of my settings, just because, again, it just feels more honest. Like uh, Stephen King is always ultimately going to return to Maine, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of times when he writes about other places, it's not as good. <laughs> I know he's living in Florida a lot, so he's been able to, to, to get a little bit more Floridian, but, you know, I think he's a person that needs that ge geography in his writing, but, you know, hey. Uh, well, and, and I think that um, it's a good place for, I, I do think it's good for, for, you know, I have gone out of my way to try and read more international authors in the last couple of years, especially trying to to study and learn about Chinese science fiction mm. uh, because I think that they're doing a, a lot of really interesting things. I'm currently reading uh, Celestial Empire, which is a history of, of Chinese science fiction. And, and I think that, you know, especially since they're going to be hosting Worldcon here coming up soon, uh, you know, the world is going to have to start paying more attention. I know Barack Obama giving the three body problem really helped Chinese science fiction like when he blurred it but uh but there is also deeper chinese science fiction to there is. and uh for example an author who i would compare you to that <laughs> would be han sunk who is a great chinese uh weird fiction writer and uh dark moon press has a primer to han sunk that i recommend um and he's kind of like the brian evanson of china Wow, and uh, and uh, but your work gets compared a lot to obviously Aikman, Aikman, and, hmm. uh, Lovecraft, and, and Clark Ashton Smith. But I do think that there are some modern writers that, if people don't read the classics, I would say uh, your work reminds me of Laird Barron or Brian Evanson. Uh, kind of the early short stories of Poppy Bright, that kind of thing. But, um, and, and, and when I say that with Poppy Bright is mostly because I think she wrote so deliciously about New Orleans in a way that, that I think you write great about Bangalore. So, 
so putting putting that out there to people. Uh, <laughs> uh, but before we, we, we close up shop on this interview, uh, I think one of the things that makes you such a great writer is that you are so well read because uh, most of the great authors that when you're when you get there, like Laird is an example. If you start talking to Laird about what he's read, his favorite horror short stories or whatever, he will go on and on and on and on because, yeah. and I think that's what makes him a great writer is because he loves devouring stories. He loves uh, breaking them apart. And like, if you talk to him about, you know, for example, why Jack Vance is a great writer, and then you'll see why Laird is a great writer just by how he dissects what this other great writer did, right? And I think dissecting this is one of the things that makes us able to, when we sit down to write a story, to unconsciously create these like really great works of fiction. And so when I say that I enjoyed seeing your influences in there, um, that's kind of what I meant, is that I can, I can see, you know, what you get out there. So on that note, as a fun thing to, to, to end with, um, three, three, or, three to five classic authors who you feel most influenced this collection and three to five of the modern authors who you think really influenced this collection and, and then we'll We'll, we'll wrap things up after that. You don't have to give an exact number, but just a few authors, classic and modern. Three classic authors would be M.R. James, uh, the ghost story writer, as far as I'm concerned. And I keep, I keep rereading his stories and just being startled. You know, he builds things up so meticulously. And he comes from his own niche interests, you know. All his characters are academics who are interested in old manuscripts and inscriptions, and it's not particularly exciting on the face of it. You know, everything is set in a library or a historical society, or at most a professor might go on vacation to the seaside. But the way he builds from the world he knows, which is the world of academicians, and the things he knows, which come from the world of very... Uh, abstruse scholarship and then builds these ghost stories that have become classics of the genre and that are still told year after year to people. Uh, I just love that. I'm, I'm totally in awe of the way he constructs the story. And again, like I said, we take his stories for granted now because, you know, the BBC does an Amar James adaptation every year and it's, it's, it's like a Christmas tradition in the UK to read out ghost stories, including those by Mar James, but they're actually so strange. Here's this guy who spent most of his life working in a college or a school and uh, doing research into very, very, very dry, not dry, but very abstruse topics. And he wrote stories that came out of that world and is about people who live in that world. And yet uh, people uh, like us today who have nothing of the same kind of life as him are still reading and being fascinated by his stories. So that gives me this deep sense that you need to write from what pulls you the most deeply. You know, don't, don't try and look at, okay, what are the top 20 books in the genre? Let me take elements from here, from there, and the other. Uh, so, yeah, Emma yeah. James really gave me the sense that it's okay to get into my own esoteric interests. Uh, 
and 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 write about them. Uh, other classic authors. I'll try to keep this shorter. I can obviously go on and on about things like this. Uh, classic authors. Um, and it's late for you. It's <laughs> it's okay. I mean, it's uh, it's morning. It's so me. late. Yeah, it's so late that it no longer matters. <laughs> it's past midnight, so I'll just uh, I'll just stay up late and listen to some music and read a bit after this. So so two more two more classic authors. Two more classic authors. Um, so the second choice is not very different from the first one. Uh, Sheridan Lefanu, uh, who perhaps wrote 60 to 80 years before M.R. James and was an Irish uh, writer of ghost stories, whose stories uh, also particularly an, uh, an account of some strange occurrences in, in Angier Street fascinated me because A, it's set in an actual street in Dublin that you can still look at on Google Map View. And B, because um, as I started reading it, the atmosphere just became so concrete. It's set in an old, rambling, dilapidated house that these two medical students have rented to live in because it's cheap, right? And to cram for their exams. And uh, I don't know, that just, that just hit me. I've, during my college days and my early working days, rented out some pretty broken down old places to stay in. And I suddenly realized that even though this is set in the early 19th century and these are Irish people, oh, I know what's going on in this story. I know the kind of life these boys are living, you know? And uh, again, it became because he wrote from the scenes he knows. But wow, just a sense that the next house on the street, which is a little older than the other ones and is probably going to be demolished in a few years, could actually harbor some terrible secret within it. Uh, a third classic writer, Aikman. I would, I would have to say Robert Aikman was on my mind a lot of times, uh, especially during the years when I was writing these stories, because I was so fascinated by the way he... Uh, every story is not just single-minded. There are two or three strange images and diversions that he just throws in because his imagination is bubbling over. We don't think of him as an extravagant writer because his prose is so measured and controlled, but actually he just throws in so much psychotic shit into every story. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And the modern ones. The yeah. modern names. Modern names. So I really started thinking that modern weird fiction might be a thing that's interesting and has room for everyone and I like as much as I like classic fiction because particularly of two writers who are no longer with us, sadly, W.H. Pugmire uh, and Joseph Pulver. And uh, Pugmire, you may not stylistically see him in the way I've written these stories, but one thing that always appealed to me is the immense melancholy of his narrators. They are beautifully sad people, you know? And particularly in the, the story that I think you mentioned, the song of the Eukarya about the, you know, the, the pattern recognition. I was really driven by wanting to capture that, that, that just a beautiful twilight sadness uh, that seems to run through so much of Pagmaya. Uh, and, I, and I think that surfaces here and there in other stories also. Uh, and with Pulver, it was just, you know, he was, he was just, he just explored on the page. And that sense of freedom that, that you could try that, you could write like an incantation. 
uh, I think the story that you particularly enjoyed, Shadow Me No More, is also written in this very rapid fire. I think it would be a great story to read aloud. And uh, if you've read Joseph Pelver, you know what I mean, right? He's, uh, he's very... Uh, At one time, uh, saw, I was supposed to be in a reading block with Pulver at a convention. It was Cody Goodfellow and I and Pulver. And um, he, he read through the whole block. <laughs> and I didn't get to read because he had no idea how much time he was taking. <laughs> and we were only supposed to be reading like short bits. So Cody and I both had two like flash pieces. And I don't think either one of us cared. <laughs> we just sat there and we're like, okay, there goes Joe. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and that was great. But uh, I'm really glad that I got to meet both him and Puckmeyer, uh, specifically at those Lovecraft film fests. You know, they were big hits there. So, yeah. And uh, a third one? Two. Anybody else? Modern? So a lot of these stories were written before I sort of immersed myself in a lot more contemporary uh, uh, writing, but I would definitely put uh, M. John Harrison as a abiding influence on how I, I see the world. I haven't, haven't read a lot of M. John Harrison. I'm going to have to, uh, as Greg, he would say, I'd have to unfuck that. Yeah, um, you know, uh, yeah. I do. I have had books on my list, but yeah. I just haven't gotten there yet. So. His uh, his novel, which was released a year ago, "The Sunken Land Now Begins to Rise Again," is a great place to start. It's uh, it's just very uncanny. It's about these strange conspiracy theory circles in this very gloomy Brexit. Britain, and it's very hard to quite define it, but it's this slow unraveling unease. Um, I think I would really compare him, uh, say, amongst American writers whom you may have read most, uh, maybe to someone like Michael Sisko. Uh, although, although Sisko, again, is very different from him, but it is a very strange sense that there's an engine that's working in these novels that is the engine of the world but it's a world that's been put together very differently than you ever realized. I get that from Cisco also. And sometimes from Evanson. Evanson is great about that. You really see this off-kilter world engine being revealed to you. I don't know if it makes sense to you. You've read both Evanson no, no, and does. Cisco. It does. And, and, and Evanson is probably my favorite modern short story author. So yeah. There's um, just a sense that that he's seen the engine, you know, he's, he's, he's peeped under the bonnet and it's not, it's not the nice logical combustion engine that we thought it was. Yeah. You know? uh, if you get a chance, uh, I, I, once you, if you haven't read his latest collection, but which, um, I really highly recommend, not just because I did it, but the interview that I did with Brian about that one, it's funny because he joked with me that I, gave away all the secrets <laughs> that interview yeah, but i'm very very proud of that interview uh, but as far as uh you know he's just to me um you know for you know when i was growing up nobody could hold a candle to those first yeah. books of blood for clive barker that just sure. for me he was he was it and i haven't felt the power of a 
and I assumed that reading those short stories were part of like finding them at a young age and discovering them. And Brian Evanson is the first time since mm. then that I've that short stories all by one author have mm. hit me yeah. as hard as as Clive did when I was a was very young reader, right? Where mm. and so I just I'm so impressed with Evanson. But anyways, uh, on to, to to your work. Uh, yeah, I could. These are all like really. You know, I, I just love to hear it because some of these, I've read a little bit of M.R. James, but I've read Peg Meyer and I've read, but I haven't read Harrison. So that's interesting. And I'll definitely have to check uh, him out. But, uh, you know, we've already kind of given the, the, the speech to the people who might not have heard it. So we're assuming the people that have made it this far, hopefully took my advice and, and got the book. And uh, if they haven't, it, it's, it's still... I don't think we've said anything that will ruin your experience of, of discovering these stories. These aren't like aha moments or, or spoilers. They're just kind of vibes and themes. And I think that, and that's one of the things that I think you're so good at uh, JP is, is vibe and, and tone. And it, it's, it's great. And uh, it's one of the coolest uh, books I read last year. And um, it's so funny because I have a hard time right when I, rank books in the end of the year it's hard for me to rank collections i just think it's weird because i just think in terms of novels but uh this was definitely one of the coolest books that i read last year and uh, very excited i mean i could talk to you all day because you know we have a lot with the shared interests uh, uh animals veganism metal yeah. philip k dick <laughs> <laughs> uh uh and just a weird uh weird fiction so like uh it's it's a fucking honor to, to have you on the show and to talk about this. And I know we could do probably another three more hours, but I want to keep it digestible for people. So uh, if people want to find you and uh, get into your work uh, and what should I read next? Cause this was the first book that I bought because I was going to get the strength of water. The novella next was my strength of water is definitely the next place to go. Uh, it's it's a short novella, which is set in India in the year 1999 in a slightly different uh, historical timeline than ours, in which the uh, advent of Hindu fascism in the country happened a lot sooner and in a lot more extreme way. So in one sense, it's kind of my man in the high castle. Uh, and uh, But it's also, it was very experimental the way I wrote it. And I hope people enjoy it. The language could seem a little overwhelming, but just go with it. It all holds together, I hope, somehow in the end. Mm, I am working on having another collection of short stories like Come Tomorrow, which will cover my less Bangalore-centric short fiction, because there's been a lot published since this was assembled. Right. And maybe that will come out next year uh, or towards the end of this year. I'm, I'm largely self-publishing these days, uh, apart from anthologies and magazines, because uh, it just gives me a little control over putting things out. And, uh, you know, uh, for example, Come Tomorrow is something I put together because people were asking me, where can we find all these stories in one uh, single, easily ordered book? And it seems to have really uh, done well for itself. At least I made back the amount of money I put 
into publishing it, which is not bad. <laughs> so, All you can ask for, right? Yeah. <laughs> A lot of times. Uh, if, if people could read Strength of Water, that would be great. I hope they enjoy it. Uh, if they want to follow me into a completely different kind of writing, Clash Books has a collection of my poetry called Broken Cup. And uh, maybe you'll find that interesting, but it's not horror at all. Uh, I don't write genre poetry, uh, but it might be interesting. Right. Yeah, that's that's about it. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Now, now you got me intrigued because of uh, the the Man of the High Castle reference, because obviously I'm thinking about it a lot. But also, uh, yeah. in um, the sense of an alternate timeline and. Uh, you know, the uh, expedited advent of fascism in my country. I was writing it, looking at the events of 2019 and 2018, but thinking, what if this had already happened in 1999? Yeah. Well, it's funny because a lot of times, yeah, when uh, I think Osama by Lavi Tidar is very Man of the mm. High Castle, but a lot of times people don't understand mm. how it's Man of the High Castle, right? You know, they, they, they're just like, where are the Nazis? You know, um, and, and, you know, I've got a lot out of my way to make the point that Man of the High Castle is a lot more than just Nazis. Oh, yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's about questioning history itself. And, and, and that's where, like, Lavi Tadar was on a similar head there. And, uh, yeah, so I'm interested in what, what you got going on there. Um, and, People can find your music online. We already talked about that. Uh, Jen and Miskatonic, that's uh, with the D, Jen, and, um, and, and find that too. And I think, uh, you know, certainly uh, I will have you back for panels and things. And when, when the next book comes out, I'm sure uh, I'd love to have you back. And, um, and it was awesome talking to you today. Uh, thank you, everybody who listened. If you made it this far, uh, yeah, and uh, join me with uh, by the eventually I'm going to read Strength of Water and and uh, have JP back. So we we want to uh, definitely support the uh, authors who are doing amazing, amazing shit out there, and JP is one of them. So thank you, JP, for coming on. Any last words? No, that's it. Thank you so much. This was great fun, and uh, yeah. I'm looking forward to a couple of the projects that you're working on, which you told me about earlier, especially the fact that you're finally writing a PKD book. Uh, that's long overdue. Good luck. I mean, you've got some big uh, uh, plans. You've got some big, got a lot of work to do in the year ahead. So I do, and I will. Uh, when this is done recording, talk to you about one of them. But uh, after the recording's up. But uh, thank you for joining me, and uh, hopefully we'll talk soon. All right.